Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts, Judith and Erin. So a lot has been happening uh, since our last podcast, Judith. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about how your day-to-day has changed? Yeah, absolutely. So we're taping this on uh, June 27th, and I have actually been back at work for a couple weeks now. Um, and it's been uh, it's been a good change. My son has been back at daycare actually for a week as well. The uh, the his daycare opened. There's still no summer camp for the older daughter, so it's just us girls during the day, trying to get you know as much uh, work done during the day as I can. It's been a little bit challenging, and we're trying to sort of. Um, get into a new uh, rhythm and routine. Um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a challenge, but we're working at it. Um, so no, I think that's great. And I think the way the workforce is heading, a lot of us are going to be kind of grappling with these issues, because we still don't really know exactly what fall holds for us as the country continues to um, grow in numbers and cases of COVID-19, right? We still don't really know where we're going to end up in fall. And I think this new reality of working from home, trying to balance work life with home life and all that entails is a really great segue into the main topic of this episode, which is called the mental load. And uh, apparently I've been grappling with this for years, but this term was new to me. And as always, this was something that you introduced me to. And I was like, when I heard it, I go, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I've been feeling for years and years. But could you kind of walk us through what this term means and where it sort of originated? Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, This is really, I think this time we're really digging in deep a little bit. It was, you know, the first couple uh, episodes that we had were more mellow conversations. I think the mental load is really something um, where it gets a little, where we get, where it gets a little more intense. Um, I, so I don't know that this is sort of like a legitimate way to derive it, but for me, this all connects very um, clearly to some of the research that um, Arlie Hochschild has been doing since the 1980s. Um, And she originally uh, did some research. She is the person that originated the term of the second shift. Um, She did some research in the 80s um, about, you know, there's this idea that um, in the 1970s, more and more women started entering the workforce. Of course, you know, we always have to keep in mind that people were women were working before uh, from various different backgrounds. But there was sort of an increase in the 1970s with more women starting to work full time. And so in the 80s, um, Arlie Hochschild did a, a ton of research on how that impacted uh, women's home life and and child caring duties and things like that. And so what she came up with was that for mo- the majority of households, um, women were doing what she called the second shift. So they would go to work, work a full shift and then come home and then still doing everything that was um, happening at home, household and child caring uh, duties as well. And then in um, in 2012, Hoshel did a uh, a follow-up and realized or found that men were taking over more and more um, of some of those duties. Men were spending more time, uh, especially with their kids. So what she found was on the surface, it looked um, really great and like things were coming more egalitarian. But then she also found that um, the activities that men were doing were either more fun. So they (laughs) were doing a lot of the childcare, um, childcare duties. Like, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone to a Costco on Saturday, but that seems to be like the place for dads and kids to be on Saturdays. Um, that kind of, absolutely. Yes. Um, if you can count that fun, I don't know. Some people might consider that a fun activity. Um, 
Right. And well, then, the, the the free samples, right? That exactly. becomes fun for the kids, I suppose. And the pizza. They have great pizza. So um, a little ad here on the side. Um, <laughs> never mind. And so then the, the, and the other thing that she found was they were a lot more flexible in their time, uh, in the time that they were dedicating to some of these duties. And so... Um, so if we fast forward a little bit more, we're finding that uh, women are still talking about being exhausted. There is a just the, there is a general sense that men are becoming more and more involved, but women still report feeling really exhausted. And this is where I think the concept of the mental load comes in a little bit. So um, in 2018, there was a comic by um, a French. Um, or a cartoon uh, by a French cartoonist who goes just by first name Emma, which I think is telling. Um, right. And uh, this this comic sort of explores the idea of the mental load a little bit. And for me, um, I think about this in as um, a lot of the research up until that point had sort of looked at childcare and household duties as two separate things. And I think um, with the the mental load, we're starting to think a little bit more about this third leg of everything that needs to get done, which is something like household management. And so um, this is according to this uh, cartoon that we're looking at. And I will link to that um, either we will find a way to share that. I will probably share this on um, Instagram. I think there is a ton of related posts on Instagram that we can share. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so what we're seeing there is um, the, the, the cartoon um, starts off with somebody talking about, you know, I went um, to uh, when I was in my first job, I went to go visit a colleague and she was trying, you know, to make I went to a colleague's house for dinner and she was trying to prepare a meal. And she was at the same time she was trying to feed her kids. And there were all of these these different things going on. Um, and uh you know, everything, the, the food spilling on the floor and we're still, you know, she's still dealing with the kids and the husband walks in and he says, you know, why didn't you ask for help? And so we can see that like, you know, he, the partner is very, uh, is very willing, um, to help and interested in helping. But there's this idea that like, it's her job to know what all the things that have to be happening and to assign certain tasks to him. So she is sort of in effect, the household manager. And throughout the cartoon, we right. sort of get we get a very clear idea of like what some of these um, what some of these other tasks are that um, we have to keep an eye on or we have to keep track of to keep the household running that disproportionately still tend to fall on women. And that's sort of what what what's causing that exhaustion that I was um, reporting. So um these are things like uh, some of the things that that fall into this category is, you know, doctor's appointments, birthday cards, like what, you know, maintaining family traditions, uh, taking note when children outgrow their clothes and making sure that there's new clothes, uh, paying the bills, communicating with caretakers, um, uh you know, keeping track of noticing when, you know, you're low on toilet paper or you're right. no, low on all of these like stocked items. What's for dinner tonight? So there's a lot of these like questions that we sort of um, that are always in people's minds that they have to think about um, just to keep sort of the household and the family running. Uh, now, one thing, you know, one thing that I do want to emphasize is that um, 
there there is a sense that like i said you know more and more families are becoming more egalitarian and it's this is not bringing this up is not to say that you know men aren't involved or they aren't doing their fair share but this is also often thought of as the invisible uh workload and so i think it's important to address that and to make that visible and to talk about it to see what all of these things are and how they're um how they're split up uh between uh between the family members or the, between the different members of a family unit um do can do you did i did you find that list that i um went through exhaustive can you think of other ex- examples that would go on that list and how do you um how do you feel about how that how those um tasks are split up at your house if you want to talk right. about that um no i i think that the list is good. It's a start. And I think this sort of diverges once you get children who are older. You know, um, for me, I have a high school student who is in robotics and their robotics team is really pretty serious. Um, They have weekly practices. Uh, They actually kind of go every other day. Those practices can be six hours long. Um, There was another section of that robotics, which was uh, team meals. Um, And so for that team, uh, everyone is responsible for cooking two team meals for 60 people. Now you can, (laughs) so you can actually, I know I was really stressed out about it and I don't, and, and this is something that I probably, we could even think about more. This wasn't like the mother has to do it, but I did it anyway with little to zero help. Um, And I'm sure if I would have asked my husband to help, he would have, but I was like, no, 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 I've got it. Um, And I really, I I could have actually ordered a meal out. I I looked into that, but it ended up being like $600 or something like that. Just, it was a way above my budget. Yeah. Um, But that was overwhelming. So those kind of team um, meals, which we do want our children to take part in extracurricular activities. So my kids are not um, super athletic, but they do a lot of other things like robotics. There's theater. Theater ends up being really a challenge too, to remember who has what practice when, uh, because two different, you know, two different scheduling. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And that's where I, you know, and it's like, I mostly keep it in my head. I do have a, like an actual handwritten calendar. I'm like a dinosaur. Um, I do use my Google app a lot and I have that Google calendar, but I actually look at it on my computer screen. Um, I don't use my phone as much as other people probably do. I think that's on account of my bad vision. I feel like it's hard sometimes to read things on my phone. Uh, But with the older kids and all that, yeah, yeah, it's just like, so you have all the extracurricular activities. Um, And then you talked about doctors. Uh, We also kind of ran into orthodontics. Um, Unfortunately, that is an issue in my family of four children. Um, all four need orthodontic treatment. And so that That's a lot kind of, of yeah, yeah. It, and it's, it's compounded now, now in the COVID era, if you want to call it that, um, there's been a lot of restrictions. So I used to be able to try to multitask and take all three in at once. Um, but I can't do that now because you're not allowed to really wait in the um, waiting room with a the child. They have you wait out in the car. And so I actually finally caught up with some of our dental appointments this last week. But it was just, it was really stressful because I'm already stressed out about going into the doctor's office, although they did an excellent job, right, with all the glass, par- or, I'm sorry, uh, plexiglass partitions. Uh, it was stressful. And so I think we talked about doctors, um, even though yeah, my, even, you know, <laughs> so I even feel it's harder now to, I had the same problem where I had um, a schedule, um, 
of, I'm sorry, I had the an appointment scheduled for my youngest daughter for her checkup for six months. And I was home alone with all three of them. And I called the doctor's office and I was like, can I bring the older two? And they said, no. So they didn't want the older two in the doctor's office with me. And so I had to reschedule, find another time where I had the other two, you know, accounted for. So I actually ended up taking my daughter in um, when the other two were staying with um, the grandparents. And it just so worked out that, you know, that, far out I scheduled you know I happened to schedule a doctor's appointment during a week where that was possible but that's that's adding another challenge that if you want to see a doctor with you know just one child you have to figure out what to do with the other two if you have multiple so um right that's definitely yeah the whole you know the whole COVID um is definitely making that even more complicated Right. And I think you mentioned childcare. You know, we are both kind of fortunate that we have family members. I mean, mine are much closer than yours. Uh, Yours, it's almost like a day trip now to get to that um, accessible grandparent care, right? But for other folks, again, I would say finding good quality childcare, that adds to the mental load as well, right? Of thinking about where they're going to be, who they're going to be with, and trying to find a, a place that's not only um, in your budget, let's be honest, right? Especially some of Absolutely, us working yeah. in the fields of academia, we're not always making the uh, big bucks, so to speak. We do it for the love, not necessarily for <laughs> the, the, the financial gain. And so it's a budgeting, but it's also you know budgeting your time because when we were in the regular day-to-day of school, that whole, uh, okay, like I had to figure out strategically and logically who needs to get to which school first, right? In the morning, right. how's that going to pan out? And then the pickup too. And I think we've talked about that a little bit. So all these sort of things whirling around in your mind while, oh gosh, guess what? Then I have to get to work now too, right? And think exactly. about all that stuff. So. Exactly. Which, you know, I have an advantage because I work from home. Um, but the whole planning summer camps used to be a huge chunk too. And, and when we were still living in Maryland, they started sending out the daycare center started sending out materials about summer camp in like December and January. And so then it's like January and February or March. And if you haven't booked your, your summer camps, you just might have an issue. You just might have a problem. And it also puts, you know, a child that's usually already in a you know, in the public system where you're not paying um, for anything other than aftercare. Now, all of a sudden you have 12 weeks in the summer. So it's a financial issue, but it's also, you know, where do you send your kid? And then, you know, as they get older and they have all these interests, it becomes a thing of like planning week to week. When they were little... I just signed them up for the school that they were already at. And I just signed them up for all the weeks that were being offered. And that was that. So it was like a one decision. um, And so it just became like a financial concern. But now that they're older, you know, my daughter, obviously this summer, this is not an issue. But I know that next summer, if things go back to some sort of resemblance of normal, (laughs) it will be, I want to do a week of theater. I want to do a week of gymnastics. And then my son will want to do a week of soccer and he'll want to do a week of tennis. And so then it just becomes a whole nother issue with planning, as I'm sure you know, because you've probably done this multiple summers in a row. So, right. We did a couple of camps as well. Again, not so much um, the other. Well, no, that's not true. We have done, I think someone did a gymnastics camp twice. We did a dance camp. It was like a day camp, right? So they just kind of went in the day. 
Um, and the girls did that a couple of times. Then we've done theater camp, which was great because it's like every day for the whole day. Um, and then they have lunch there. And it was a great, meaningful experience for the kids. They really enjoyed it. They made a short film at the end. But it's just it becomes a lot when you're still trying to think about what our day-to-day work looks like. And you had some notes and I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that because again, as both of us are feminist scholars and we think a lot about these issues, would you say, is it fair? I know you said that now the trends are changing a bit where we see men kind of focusing on some of that time spent with children, but what does the research say about what all these other kind of, I don't want to call them not fun activities, but like the scheduling, like the bills, um, as you said, very importantly, who is going to get the toilet paper next? Um, that's a good one here. How is that still gendered at all? Are we still kind of following those? I mean, gosh, I think of Betty Friedan and the happy homemaker housewife. I mean, this, this person that's on top of everything, are we still, are we still there? Or would you say that with the research has that sort weight at all. I think that's still, um, for the most part, and statistically speaking, it's a gendered experience. Now, I think, you know, when we're looking at something like this cartoon um, and the the people that are having the conversations about the mental load, I think are tend to be women. Um, and so to be fair, I think there are certain things, at least in my household, that are split up or that that don't make the list. So like when we're talking about what all of these mental load tests are, I, you don't find something on there like lawn care, which is something that my husband will do or oil changes on cars or home maintenance or any sort of repairs. Um, those are things my husband is installing in AC right now. Again, that's sort of something that's on his, terms a little bit more and on his schedule a little bit more. But that's not something I think about. So I think, you know, when we do talk about these things, um, it's important, like I said, um, making making that invisible labor visible. So right, addressing right. it, you know, with whoever you're parenting with, with your parenting partner um, or your, you know, the other members in your in your household, you know, who is doing what and what I find so remarkable. And this is really funny because I I remember my mom talking about this already, that that was something that she was frustrated with like 30 years ago. It's just a matter of, I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of a difference between res- taking responsibilities and performing tasks. So, it, you know, f- for each for each family, it's important to look at, you know, do, does everybody feel equally responsible for the things that need to get done? Where I think where it becomes an issue is when it's one person's responsibility and then the other person is helping or being assigned tasks because, and this is something that the, that the cartoon actually also makes explicit is that in my, the, the, narrator or whatever the first person in the cartoon i guess i don't have a lot of experience about uh, and talking about um how cartoons work um but the the character in the cartoon says something like when i moved up in my job to a position where i was responsible was where i was had more responsibility and i was assigning tasks to other people i was getting a lot less actual work done because delegation takes a long time and so i think that's the same thing here that applies here in a way where it's like okay you know who's responsible and who's 
are you delegating or is the, are the responsibilities split up equally or is one person responsible and then assigning tasks to the other person, if that makes sense? Right. Without throwing any family mom- member here under the bus. Again, I'm exactly. speaking because my, my children are older now. Okay. They really are. Right. And I walk by the sink full of dishes, you know, 10 times a day and I just end up doing them um, because I don't, when you're talking about delegation, I get tired of hearing myself um, asking people to help and they won't or don't. It's not really my partner. If I asked Ernie, hey, will you do the dishes? He will do them for me. I know he will. But it's that added responsibility then or feeling like the one that has to make things done because I feel like if I didn't ask, it would just kind of sit there, right? Exactly. Or um, older children cleaning their rooms. I think it's not a lot to ask someone to get the dirty laundry from the floor into even just the washing machine, perhaps. Um, And I think my parenting style is pretty relaxed, but it just maybe at the same time, I think there's a tension within myself where I feel like I have to do this because if I don't, it's just not going to get done. And maybe I could ask for more help or more sharing of the burden. But I feel like I'm the only one that can do it, and I don't know if that's a if that's a common um, sort of uh, problem. I don't know if it's a problem, but a mindset of women who are kind of balancing these roles. But I probably could ask for more help, but do I? You know, the answer is no, I don't, because I sometimes just give up and I I, I get tired of it because it's another thing that is making me tired asking for help. <laughs> if that makes sense, absolutely. And I think that's what usually gets sort of um, summarize on the term of maternal gatekeeping, where women do have a tendency to sort of uh, do things themselves. And there's this whole um, dynamic between, you know, letting somebody else take over some of the responsibility, but then accepting the way that they do it. I feel like a lot of times women are also where in households where this is an issue, women probably feel like they're the authority on the matter and they know how to do it. And so then it's sometimes hard to let go of um, how things are being done. So if you're assigning something to your kids, um, then it needs to be okay how they do it. That's sort of like the issue that I often have where I just think, um, oh, if I let, you know, one of the kids do this, then it's not going to get done right. So I'd rather do it myself. And so um, that, but that way they can never learn how to take responsibility for something or, you know, do it um, or learn how to do it better over time, if that makes sense. Right. Um, Right. And I'd be curious, too, about other, um, you know, we're talking kind of from a heteronormative perspective. So I'd be curious to see if there's any research yet on how same-sex marriages and couples there, if the the divide is similar, if there's, you know, I think that would be really interesting to hear about those experiences. If any of our listeners wanted to write in or talk to us about that, I'd love to hear um, from some other perspectives or single parents. And I mean, I can only imagine that the burden there and the mental load is just even more taxing when one person can ostensibly carrying um, all of this on their shoulders. So I'd love to hear some of those perspectives um, if those are available too. Absolutely. I agree with that. I think that would be uh, very interesting. Um, The other thing that I think is interesting about this, um, and one of the reasons why we sort of thought that this would be an interesting topic to, to talk about today, is that I feel like this, the mental load or the invisible load also um, is a core thing that happens for parents that work in academia. So, or generally people working in academia, it seems like there's 
it seemed to me like there's a lot of that going on in terms, of, especially when it comes to service work, but of course also teaching. I feel like teaching involves a lot of sort of um, planning and keeping track of things and uh, staying on top of certain things. Um, since you're more active in academia, do you think maybe you can um, speak to that a little bit more? Like what are some things that you do that you think would fall under mental load? For sure. And there are many, right? I think sometimes people have this misconception about academics in, in the college world, but also even K through 12, like, well, you have the summer off, must be really nice. And I just saw one of our former colleagues posting that this is the very first summer as a college professor that she's had off in like 10 years, right? And so even when we are off, we are always doing something. So some of that invisible work, for example, would be curriculum design and redevelopment. I took part on three committees this summer, and it's it's enjoyable work for me. I actually like thinking about how this new assignment is going to play out in the classroom, but it is a stress, right, of thinking about not only when you're redesigning a course, what is the content, but how are we going to write that content? What do the rubrics look like? What new books are we going to choose? Um, we have so much of that work that goes be on behind the scenes that students and other people outside of that realm don't know about. Um, excuse me. Then there's also thinking about I try to forge very personal relationships with my students, meaning that I try to be an ally. I try to be someone that they can rely upon. And where I'm working, a lot of our students have gone through very strenuous situations. Um, I know just in the time that I've been in the field, I remember working with a student both of her parents were in prison. Okay. She had been a ward of the state. She was at Wayne State University. She did not have a lot of the coping and life skills that would have been passed on because she'd been, she'd grown up in the system. Um, I had another young man uh, last year, two years ago, he kind of just went missing from class. And I, you know, I probably go a little bit beyond the name. I kept texting him and trying to email him and finally said, look, you know, I, I finally saw him in the hallway one time and I said, what is going on? And he's like, well, I've been living out of my car. You know, my mom kicked me out for A, B, and C. And so that's that's why I haven't been around. Um, And so I feel like there is also this burden of if you, if one is a good connected professor, we carry some of that as well, right? This kind of what's happening with our students' life. Um, So there's that connection. There's the curriculum dimension. Then there's also all the other service work that you mentioned, right? The kind of I'm on our rankings committee. I'm on, you know, I know our former advisor is probably on six or seven different committees. And at my job, I'm in a non-tenure track position. So a lot of this I'm just doing because of the expectations. Um, But I feel like sometimes it's the invisible work and it needs to get done. But no one really knows about all of these other things going on right now. Um, Can you think of anything else from the academic world? I had a list, but was there anything you were thinking of in particular as far as that kind of uh, labor that kind of goes unseen? Yeah, what I'm thinking about actually is more related to my line of work, which is peer reviews, right? So, Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah. So those are that's, <laughs> uh, you know, that's invisible unpaid labor where, you know, I can tell a difference between, you know, three months ago and now that, you know, when I get a peer, when I get a manuscript in that needs to be peer reviewed, I reach out to scholars. And I used to do the same thing when I was on a on a journal where journal articles need to get peer reviewed. And that's just sort of this thing where um, I always applaud. um, I always applaud people that write me back and say, I can only do this for a cash honorarium. Most publishers do not offer that. Um, so there's this idea that, you know, that's part of service work that doesn't really, you know, I don't know in to what degree that translates back into anything other than, you know, 
payback right. because your book was reviewed at some point, right? So um, that's just kind of like how we all have come to accept that academic scholarship works. Um, and as, like I said, as publishers, we work in this system. And so, um, that's how, that's how we work and that's how we operate. Um, but yeah, people, you know, will write back and say, I can't do this right now. Um, especially, or that, you know, a lot of scholars will try to keep their summers open for their own, um, for their own research. But with the situation that we're in right now, as we've been talking about, you know, if people are also home with their kids and they're also a lot of, a lot of, uh, scholars will write back and say, you know, I'm in the process of preparing for fall classes and they're going to be online. I've never done this before. Um, so that's sort of, that's, I think, a huge chunk of invisible labor that is great uh, when people are willing to do it. But I always sort of understand when they can't. Right. No, I'm working with that very problem right now. And I want to be careful how I word this, but uh, trying to get this chapter done. I told you I did get the chapter done. I got the feedback from the editor. And um, at any rate, I'm just having a hard time really diving into it, right? Because I was explaining it again to my husband, who doesn't understand it. He works in a field where he gets paid for everything he does. And he's exactly. like, when, you know, <laughs> when I first got into right. this field, yeah. it was kind of like, well, oh, that's so cool. I was doing a little project for an encyclopedia because I was first starting out. And I'd been told, you know what, an encyclopedia entry, that's a great way to get your foot in the door. It's, it's uh, you know, it's from a valid, uh, verified, very prestigious um, publication series. It's a great way to get published. And so he was like, oh, cool. How much do you get paid for it? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing. I don't get paid anything for it. And he was just like, I don't understand. I mean, he does work that I could never right. do that I, I don't want to do, but he gets he gets paid by the hour, right? Exactly. And so <laughs> working on this, the revisions on this chapter, I'm just really struggling because for many reasons, if I were in a tenure track position, this would count for something. I am only doing this at this at this moment to keep my mind fresh, to feel connected still to the academy um, because I like to write and because it's another um, line that I can add to my CV to be quite you know frank about it. Exactly. But no one, yeah, no. no one at my institution, you know, it doesn't count for that much. There is all I mean to say because it's a teaching heavy institution. So I struggle with that every day when I dive back into that document. Um, okay, I'm doing this for myself, but it just, it feels like a burden. And this kind of leads me to where I was with my dissertation. And I think why I was connecting this um, mental load, not only to people that have graduated with the PhD, but the PhD students, I was thinking about this a little bit more, was that when I think about mental load for the last nine years or so, it was the dissertation. It was this invisible thing that when I went to bed at night, it was nagging me that I didn't have it done. When I got up in the morning, I thought, oh my gosh, I should be working on this. Um, and so when I think of PhD students, I also kind of think of um, if they are parents or not, there is still a kind of a big mental load associated with that particular um, space in one's life and one's career as well. Yeah, I think it's on top of the dissertation that we're supposed to write. I remember, and I don't know if we mentioned this last time already, um, or if we've talked about this here, but when we were in our intro to grad studies, I remember being told that what we needed to have a solid chance on the job market was to have two um, publications, two journal articles in a peer-reviewed journal published 
by the time we defend our dissertation that weren't directly out of the dissertation. So there's this idea that, you know, we're writing a dissertation and yet we're also trying to work on top of that, trying to get published to sort of build this resume that doesn't where it's hard to really gauge like what the what the payback is. You know, once once I finished my dissertation, it felt and I did more research into the job market and felt like, well, the two articles are sort of the bare minimum. And then, you know, where's your book contract and things right. like that. So um, there's a lot of things going on that you have to juggle um, as a grad student in terms of preparing for when, you know, you're, you're going to enter the job market. And just the question of, Am I going to get a job? How am I going to get a job? What needs to be on my resume by the time I get there just really adds to um, writing just a dissertation by itself. And then, yeah, if you have children and you have sort of that mental load, it just there is just overall a lot of invisible labor going on, I feel like, right. for people that are parents in the academy, for sure. And I remember hearing this. Um, I remember hearing this kind of... Uh, phrasing or adage like the job search is a full-time job. I heard that more than once in graduate school where this idea of like going, and it is, it becomes a daunting task that quite frankly, when I have jumped into the job list um, and we're in English and literature, so the um, selections are not always as robust as one would like. You know, you're looking at maybe 90 or 100 jobs. You're trying to figure out which ones do I really have a shot at? And, you know, it's, Right. Okay. So I have the two published articles, but is that enough? You know, is that going to be enough? And then the work of creating a CV, it that's a job. Um, also, even some of the, the letters and the teaching philosophy statement, making sure that's right for that institution you're applying for. And then, I mean, sometimes there's more. Um, I've had uh, different applications where they wanted seven or eight different pieces of work. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot. And I remember yeah. people saying, that's a job. It is a job. You know, it is. And I remember when I was on the job market, I had a spreadsheet um, that would tell me what the job was, what materials were required. I would check boxes, you know, and then you have to be in touch with whoever is recommending you from your um, dissertation committee or whoever else you're going to ask to make sure that they get uh, enough of a heads up. So there's sort of timelines, you know, the the. The due dates are anywhere from, you know, September 1st to whatever, February 15th, depending on what field you're in. Um, And so just to keep track of all of the deadlines, all the materials that you need, the different ways to apply, you know, if you are you applying directly, are you applying through the HR site? Are you applying through Interfolio um, and whatnot? And then, you know, yeah, the other... I just had this other thought about um, the the building your resume too is the uh, is the idea of conferences and keeping track of like what conferences are going on and making sure that you submit proposals for that on time because that helps you you know draft your chapter right. or whatever. So there's a whole nother thing um, to keep track of as well. So yeah, definitely the more we t- we're talking now about you know being a grad student and the mental load. Um, I know that my first my first <laughs> my first inclination was, oh, well, that's, you know, mellow compared to what we're doing now. But there's actually a lot going on, I'm noticing. Yeah, there was. And I mean, I think of the travel schedule and we were we had pretty good, um, I think, 
professors that kind of steered us into what we needed to do as far as professional development. But we conferenced, uh, I hope we can talk about this in a future episode, the fun of conferencing together, but trying to balance that with family as a grad student. Um, Also the costs involved with that. That's another whole kind of issue when we're talking about balancing a budget. Um, And I think there was a lot of mental stress for students, especially grad students who moved specifically to Detroit in our program. And, you know, we got a stipend every year, but I think that whole idea of trying to balance one's um, budget with what you get paid to be a graduate uh, teaching assistant, which, you know, our program was actually, from what I hear, okay. Um, It's interesting to see what different teaching assistants make in their stipend. Um, I looked one time and I know that I think we got around 15,000 a year. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. It might have been a little bit more than that, plus health insurance and things like that. Plus we got the benefits. Those were awesome. But to support a family on $15,000 a year is just, there's no way. Um, You almost have to have someone else. There's no way. And I have seen a lot of um, people, because I still keep in touch with people at our um, former college and who the budget is quite a stressful aspect as well. And especially the changing shape of academia and thinking about, okay, so you already sort of talked about the stress of applying for jobs. Then what happens if it's been six months and I don't have anything and now I'm going to this adjunct workload? And that's really, I thought that was stressful as well, um, trying to figure out, again, where am I going to work? Logistically speaking, there was a time before I got into the PhD program that I was, as they call it, the freeway flyer. Uh, I was at five exactly. different community colleges. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you did, oh my God, trying to like balance that <laughs> of like, which place am I at today? What am I teaching where are my notes for that? And this was back in 2010, I think, or no, 2009. Um, I just, I had to have like a briefcase with my handouts. And, you know, it was just that, that was really, when we think about planning and the sort of behind the scenes work, that was just incredibly challenging. And I know a lot of people, because of the way higher education is today, that is their livelihood is being an adjunct professor at three or four different colleges in the area. And that to me was incredibly challenging because at least as a graduate student, I did get those benefits. As an adjunct, I didn't have any job security or any benefits. So that was another whole series of stressful encounters I was having and thinking about. Um, you know, at one point, I had to apply um, for Medicare for the kids and things like that. So I did it. You know, I was thankful it was available, but it was another sort of series of things I had to go through whilst trying to still finish that lovely dissertation and trying to work as well. So And going on the job market once you got closer to finishing. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was very stressful. Um, So as with many things, I think you do a much better job at managing some of this. I think that, you know, we've talked about having hacks every episode. I have seen you kind of manage some of this in a much um, more clear, uh, when you talked about having a spreadsheet for the job search, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Uh, but, it helped. So- <laughs> it definitely helped, like, stay on track of or stay on top of what I needed for which, for which application. So, what would you recommend now or what is something that you've been using a little bit that you think might help with balancing the mental load? Yeah, as you know, I am a huge uh, proponent of the bullet journal. Um, I 
have always been sort of into um, planning and calendars and uh, journal keeping and things like that. And so this was once I came across that, this was an absolute no brainer for me. Um, for those that are listening that aren't familiar with the bullet journal, I will, um, again, link to that or make sure that we share something helpful on, um, either Instagram or, um, wherever else. And, um, you will find it. And it's, so the bullet journal is a system that works with a blank, um, notebook and allows you to really personalize your, um, your, your planning, uh, based on what your needs are. And so, uh, I have been using that for, I think, four years now. And so what what the core idea behind it is, is that it's one notebook that holds all of your different um, aspects of your life. And so I'm able to both plan uh, my work stuff, my kids' appointments, my, you know, their entire school year with all of the whatever holidays they have coming up, whatever vacation days they have where I need to find extra daycare if I need to. Uh, doctor's appointments, um, household management. I have all of that in one notebook. And I have found that to be really helpful. That's the only way that I can really stay on top of things. And it's a it's enjoyable for me just because it really works to how my brain works and what, you know, it, it allows a little bit of space for creativity. I'm not the most creative person. I'm not an artist. But I do enjoy a little bit of creativity in my life. And so the bullet journal is a place for that as well. And so that has worked um, really, really well for me. Uh, Well, I've seen some (laughs) examples and you have beautiful penmanship and almost like calligraphy. So I love that. Um, Have I even seen that you do like meal planning and budget kind of? I mean, I don't know if you put the numbers out there, but like meal prep and planning. So you even have like that kind of organized for the week? I have to meal plan. Otherwise, I I try to um I I I try to get as many decisions um taken out of my day-to-day life as I possibly can. So I try to make decisions um when I'm calm, when I'm quiet because I know that I'm horrible with decisions when I'm stressed. And I am also not a uh very good sort of like um free spirit when it comes to cooking. So I do sit down on Saturdays and I plan, I pick seven meals that I'm going to make for the next week. And I write my grocery list based on those things. And I have everything in house. And so I don't plan like this is what's going to be Monday. This is what's going to be Tuesday. But when it's time to uh, plan my day, I do think about what are we going to eat today and what how much time is that going to cost me? Do I need to prep that during lunch break? Or can I, you know, can I do it right before dinner time? Um, Those are those things I have to sort of have figured out at the beginning of the day. Um, Otherwise, I get flustered and it just leads to chaos. And the same thing with uh, my basic to do list, I tend to sit down at the end of the night and make a plan for the next day so that when I get up, I don't have that decision-making process because I know that I, it will cost me too much time. And so I just um, kind of go for it. Um, I, I want to be ready to start moving in the morning um, with knowing exactly what my top priorities are for the day. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how I, I work with that. No, I do think that sounds any, like, oh, go ahead. No, do you do any meal planning at all or how do you, uh, how do you handle that? part of your Girl, no I again <laughs> this is why we're great friends I am when you said like sort of fly by the seat of my pants I I am <laughs> that person um 
I try. No, God, I don't plan. It's a lie if I say I plan. And I'm thinking, though, that when you're describing this planning and using the bullet journal, that would actually kind of alleviate some of the stress from the mental load. It seems to me that if you did those things, if I were to do those things, maybe that would alleviate at a little bit of the oh my gosh, you know, it's five o'clock. I'm driving home in rush hour. What am I going to feed my family? Now in the past, I tried to do something. um, A lot of people recommended the Instapot or the slow cooker. I did find that to be a little bit helpful if I made one slow cooker meal and then kind of repurpose it throughout the week. Um, So for people that- That's great. Eat, you know, if if someone does eat meat in the audience, um, say perhaps they make a big- um, pork roast and that can be one dinner and then the pork can be ground up into tacos and then the next day it could be I don't know like a barbecue pork sandwich um I feel like those weeks are really successful for me but I don't see I think I don't have the list if I did the list every week maybe I'd be better off um because I am I'm a very spontaneous person and I like that, but I think that maybe I like that feeling of being stressed out, I think is what I'm growing to find about myself after all these years. But I think in some ways, if I were to have a plan and a set schedule, it would help me, you know, feel a little bit better about the day to day. Yeah, I definitely, it definitely works better for me. I, but I tend to get very flustered when I'm stressed and way less. There's, there's like a happy medium and then there's just chaos. And so I try to take as much of that chaos out of my, life and out of my week um, as I can to just sort of operate smoothly as smoothly as possible. Um, I still stress out all the time, though. So there's that. <laughs> right, right. And I don't see any of this um, going away. I think part of it is probably just our personality type, but just it's the way of the world, right? And if we continue to work from home and I'm glad to be, I'm, I'm very glad I'm still employed. I, I really truly am, but I think I'm just going to have to navigate this in a way that's a little more organized um, and maybe have a more of a set schedule, especially if my children don't return to school face-to-face. I'm going to have to have more of a set down plan of like, we're doing schoolwork at this time um, or something of that nature. But uh, it's funny. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about you have this awesome hack. I want to tell you about my awesome fail uh, because it kind of relates to what we're talking about, which is that my husband is also very spontaneous. And we asked him if he wanted to do anything for Father's Day. And he said he wanted to go berry picking. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, right. You know, that's that's all good. And I was like, okay. Uh, so he took our youngest daughter. She's seven. She's the only one um, that got buy-in. Uh, from the berry picking. But at any rate, uh, they picked about 10 pounds of strawberries. So what do I do with those? Um, I try, (laughs) right. He comes home with a big, huge box and he's like, well, I really like that, that jam you make. Um, I think it's really good. And it's just a simple refrigerator jam recipe. You can freeze it if you want. And I've done it in the past a bunch of times. And he's like, you know what, I'll clean all the berries for you and you can make the jam. And so the very next day I had a very long meeting. I really, probably shouldn't say this, but we were having a an eight-hour uh, WebEx meeting. It was a training meeting. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to multitask. I'm awesome. I've got this. I will have my phone on listening to the meeting. I can have the computer open and um, I'll make the jam. Uh, the thing is, uh, much like the rest of my uh, life, my kitchen is very cluttered. And it seemed to me whenever I need a tool, a specific tablespoon, it's it's gone missing. My measuring cups are all in disarray. I don't know who's using the measuring cups besides me. I find that very odd. <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> so, an interesting question, right? Where are they going? Um, at any rate, I'm trying to listen to this meeting and learn about this new technology. And I'm trying to make jam at the same time. And I thought it went fine. Um, I'm going to admit this to you. But what occurred is that I got my math mixed up because oh no <laughs> I wasn't paying so this is it this is kind of the trouble of trying to do too much at once um because I couldn't find a tablespoon I was using a half tablespoon and I needed to double it but then I had also doubled the recipe so I needed to multiply Quite whatever triple. yes exactly and I think I reduced it by a fourth so I ended up oh with, no you know, 10 pounds of uh, jam <gasps> uh whatever 10 pounds of berries into a jam that was like super runny I mean it tastes really good don't get me wrong but it's like a strawberry syrup or a strawberry sauce oh and, that's um, so disappointing it really is thank you for understanding that uh, because I was like, it's, it's, you know, Ernie's like, oh, it tastes good, but that's not the point. It's like after putting so much effort into something, I want it to be the right way. Right. And I know you can relate to this. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, my, yeah. <laughs> my hack for anyone, if this ever happens to you, I realized I had some, um, chia seeds. Uh, someone had encouraged me to buy chia seeds for something else. And I remembered reading that chia seeds are a natural thickening agent. Yes. Um, so I just I just sprinkled in the chia seeds and called it a and day. And they are great for you too. Yeah. So, so there you go. Yep. So that was my little win loss kind of. I was really disappointed after putting in all that effort. But you know, it is what it is. It does taste really good. It's just, I, I wanted to say that sometimes I think as academics, as women, as parents, uh, sometimes we do it, just have to slow down and do one thing at a time. At least that's what I learned from this project because I thought, you know what, it would have been just better if I did this after the meeting as opposed to trying to, who makes jam during an eight hour meeting? Come on, that's silly. I completely agree with you. I remember one time I was when my oldest daughter was really, really little and I was working on my dissertation. I was hell bent on um, both cooking her a sweet potato and reading an article at the same time. <laughs> and I just it's it just stuck with me so much. This memory of like the burnt sweet potato in the pot and the half read article and, you know, you think you're getting multiple things done and in the end, nothing gets done. And so then, you know, sometimes it's more productive to just pick your priorities, pick one thing that right. you're going to do and cut your losses. Like it's yeah. everything is not always possible. I've and I've gotten a little bit better at multitasking over the years, but not really. It's not really how I work. So I think it kind of speaks to a key term we brought up maybe last episode. I think it's called like toxic productivity, but this idea that we need to be doing something and one thing isn't enough, you know, one thing. And optimizing at all times. Right, right. It, like, everything I'm do has to be things. like an optimal use of time. Yep. Exactly. Right. And I don't I don't think that always um, plays out uh, in the home life. It might be OK when you're in the office, but it's it's harder to do at home, I have found for sure. So um, I know we promised uh, revealing to our readers what we're reading. Did I say readers? I meant listeners. Yes. Well, you can tell I'm yeah. in the sorry. You can tell I'm in the lit mine. Um, I wanted to ask you, are you reading anything new or interesting right now? So I just recently finished reading uh, a book called How to Stop Losing Your SHIT with Your Kids. Um, okay. You know, I talked about it earlier that I was very much into reading some more parenting books. And this one really, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, it did a really good job of explaining like how meltdowns happen, both for parents and for kids. It explained sort of like what's going on in the brain, which part of the brain, which parts of the brain are working and which aren't. 
Um, and then uh, the author is Carla Nomberg. She also talked um, in the book about triggers and what our triggers are and how, you know, our kids um, push our buttons. Um, and so how triggers are something that make our buttons bigger so that our kids can find them more easily. And um there was a lot of t- there was a lot of really good instruction about you know what those triggers can be and what kinds of things you can do to minimize that um, in I thought a very tangible way. Like I know there's a lot of talk about self care going on and there's just not you know I don't have time for a bubble bath every day, um, but I might have I might be able to make time to meditate for five minutes or something like that. And so it just I found it to be very helpful. Um, and I really enjoyed reading it for sure. It sounds what? like actually uh, really applicable to like everything we've just been talking about as well, because I, I like that you mentioned that the parent can have the meltdown mode as well. It's not yes. just the child. And I think when we've been talking about all these different things we're managing in our mind, um, I know that sometimes my fuse is really short and I want to be the best parent I can. But you just you know, when you're talking about the buttons, I mean, I have some that are pretty obvious in the morning uh, trying to get ready. But but there's other ones as well. And so I think this sounds like something that could be really useful to any listener who's thinking about how can they do a better job balancing the mental load with being a parent. Absolutely. Uh, for sure. I think it was really, it was really helpful. It got me thinking about a lot of things that I hadn't noticed, like, you know, temperature, like I actually tend to get pretty, um, testy when I'm when I'm hot right now. So uh, so that's something that hadn't occurred to me before. But once I started thinking about it, I was like, Oh, yeah, that's totally a situation that I need to be mindful of. um, If I want to prevent myself from uh, blowing a fuse. So uh, yeah. So what about you? Have you been reading anything fun? Um, I got done. I've actually been having a really good reading summer, but uh, something that was kind of interesting that I wanted to talk about was I watched uh, the recent, the newly released biopic um, of Shirley Jackson called Shirley. Uh, it's on Hulu right now. And I thought this was kind of a good teachable moment because I know sometimes people think, um, you know, showing students films isn't, it's a shortcut, at least at my college, but I love studying film. And anyway, it got me thinking more about Shirley Jackson, the author, because I think almost every good anthology of American lit includes her uh, short story, The Lottery. Um, And so the film was interesting. I really enjoyed it. It was visually stunning. But it got me reading about Shirley Jackson and thinking about other things of hers I could read. And um, just a small spoiler, it's not I'm not going to really affect the meaning of the um, film for you all. Uh, It it doesn't depict her as having any children. And what I was reading about is that she actually had four children. And so then oh, I started. Oh, wow. That's yeah. an interesting choice on the filmmaker's part. It, it really is. And I mean, it worked in the film, but someone, another critic had pointed that out. And I thought, oh, wow. And so then I came uh, to discover that she actually wrote a bit of life writing about this. And so I, I picked up this uh, kind of loose uh, description of her family life. And it's uh, ironically called Life Among the Savages. And I just had to share this one passage with you if you bear with me because it just even though this is like you know decades before it just reminded me of my own house which she writes um, just right exactly um it says i look around sometimes at the paraphernalia of our living sandwich bags typewriters little wheels off things and marvel at the complexities of civilization with which we surround ourselves 
Would we be pleased, I wonder, at a wholesale elimination of these things so that we were reduced only to the necessities, coffee pot, typewriters, the essential little wheels off things? And then, this happening usually in the springtime, I begin throwing things away. And it turns out that although we can live agreeably without the little wheels off things, new little wheels turn up almost immediately. Yes, this is back progress. Um, And that just really cracked me up because I thought, wow, you know, here it is decades later. And I know exactly what she means. Maybe they're not little wheels, but uh, we do this purge every couple of months. This has actually been a time where we try to go through and get rid of some things. And here we are again, back with the little wheels off of things. So um, I'm looking forward to finishing it up. I'm only in about, I've made my way through about the first uh, third of the book, but I just thought it was an interesting choice uh, to know she did produce some really striking um, novels, which kind of have a horror element, horror element to them, um, and kind of almost pointing out sort of uh, the horrific effects maybe of being in a house alone, you know, um, kind of thinking, I'm even thinking of like reckoning with like the yellow wallpaper, right? This kind of like being trapped yeah. in one's home. Um, and so it's interesting that when she's writing about her children, though, uh, what comes across is a lot of love and affection, but in sort of a darkly humorous way, which I can really relate to. So I'm curious That's to see wonderful. how the rest of it pans out. Um, so I think we had a really awesome episode today. And where can our listeners find us if they want to find any of those links you posted? Um, we have an Instagram address and we would love to get in touch with any of our listeners. Where is that located? Yeah, I'd love to hear from people um, about, you know, maybe if it, what and how much of that would that we talked about today resonated with them and maybe what we forgot, um, what we didn't address. And they can get in touch with us at um, on Instagram. We are at uh, PhD in Parenting. And then we also have a Gmail address. Um, and that is uh, PhD in Parenting podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you um, until next time, I'd say. Thanks and have a great day day.